It would be really helpful to have your Bibles open. So John chapter 16. Today we continue in our series, Why Christmas? So it's week three out of four. So if you have your Bibles open, Bible up ready, John chapter 16. And there's an outline on the back of the news as, as well. But let's pray as we come to opening God's Word together. Gracious God, we do thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that you are the giver of all good gifts. So Lord, please help us to come now humbly and confidently in Jesus. That we might know a joy that pervades through all and in all because of you. In Jesus' name, Amen. At a staff meeting just a few weeks ago, when we were discussing joy in our devotional times, or joy that Patrice had shared, we take turns, the entire team were really in awe when Bishop Daniel, after the devotional time, shared of his experience in the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya some years ago. At the time when he and Rachel were there, the camp was home to over 160,000 people, people who had been displaced from their home and their country, people who had witnessed all manner of horror and with no certainty of what the future held. Yet Daniel said, during the time of Advent and Christmas, the joy in the camp was uncontainable. He said, drums were beating... People were marching, they were singing in unison, as her joy spilled and it infiltrated every corner of the camp as they declared the good news of Jesus' birth. This wasn't a mere optimism for the future. This wasn't obviously mere happiness of present predicament, but a joy, a joy that pervaded everything even their sorrow and their uncertainty. In John chapter 16, the disciples are sharing a meal. It's actually the final meal together with their master. Despite Jesus having warned them time and time again that he is going, they just really haven't grasped it. And now, as he says, in a little while I'm going, they are totally confused and afraid. The teacher is about to leave them. And it's actually going to be worse than they think, than they anticipate. He's not just going away, but he is going to the cross. The world is falling and about to fall apart in the knowledge, yet in the knowledge of what is going to happen to him and the knowledge of what will happen to the disciples, Jesus makes the extraordinary promise, your grief will turn to joy. Now, Jesus, of course, is not just a master of spin, But he's really telling the disciples that even in light of the revelation of his departure, that even in light of the sorrow that they will face, that their grief won't just fade or be ignored or not as bad as they anticipate. No, Jesus says, your grief is going to turn, will be transformed to joy. That's the joy that Jesus offers. Christian joy is like that Bishop Daniel experienced in Kakuma. A joy that isn't dependent on circumstance or ourselves, but on him. 
Now, you might think, that sounds totally outlandish. In fact, that sounds a little unhinged. But my hope today is to share with you, to convince you actually, that as we approach Christmas, that not only is this type of joy real, but we can grasp it, not because we muster up it within ourselves, but because Jesus' parting is temporary, we can have a present relationship and there is a permanent victory. Three critical things to hold on to. So first, the parting is temporary. So would you look with me, verse 16. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Just in case that wasn't evident, they make it really clear for us. John has recorded it. So here the disciples are, and despite Jesus having warned them that he's going, they are totally confused, maybe even partly in denial, that he will be leaving them. What does a little while mean? Is he popping to the shops? Is he heading out to town? Or perhaps, too painful to even consider, is he talking about something more permanent? You can imagine the whispers around the table, what does he mean? Even when Jesus is totally aware of the table charter, who is totally aware of the table charter, provides a little clarification. So he reiterates in verse 17 that he's going to the Father. Well, they just return to the point, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. It's a bit like if you've ever uh, been in a room and people are having a conversation, they're really confused, and then you provide a bit of input to provide a clarification, they just kind of look at you blankly and then continue on with the confusion just as before. But before getting harsh with the disciples, just remember what they've been through. They've given up everything to follow Jesus. They've left home, town, job. They would have experienced fractured relationships. They've probably been shunned by their friends. And whilst they've had wavering moments of clarity that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited King, it's really clear that all of their hope, it's bundled and it's concentrated in Jesus. So Jesus going, well, it is a big deal. Sometimes people have thought that Jesus is talking about his ascension, that that must be the reference about him going. After all, we understand that this is when the promise of the Spirit, that we read about in chapters 14 and 15, that's when that was fulfilled. But here in chapter 16, Jesus is talking about and preparing them for, for a more imminent departure, that he's about to go to the cross. Not only will they be in despair, not only will their lives be under threat, not only will they have lost their master and not know what to do next, but the very cause of their inconsolable sorrow will be simultaneously the cause of the world's rejoicing. Can you imagine that? That the cause of your sorrow is the cause of rejoicing around you. That's what we read in verse 20. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn whilst the world rejoices. You will grieve. Jesus speaking so plainly to them, it's so hard to fathom what it would have been like that this apparent defeat would be a roaring victory for others. But he says, but your grief, 
This is such a deep grief. Your grief will turn to joy. Verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. So notice, Jesus is in no way diminishing the pain and seriousness of the sorrow they'll face. He's not minimizing it. He's not just applying some shine or spin. You know, like when a friend might say to you, well, surely things aren't that bad, or she'll be right. There's not some sort of invitation to reframe or mask your pain with some sort of superficial happiness. Now, Jesus says, guys, this is going to be terrible, worse than you anticipate. You've got no idea. You're going to be plunged into a deep and intensely painful period. However, it's not the end. In fact, it's through this pain of him going that a new world is being born. That's the parallel with the child being born, of course, not that the, the pain immediately dissipates. But then upon seeing the child, well, now the joy occupies more mind share than the pain. Jesus is not diminishing pain in any way. He's completely acknowledging it. It's why at a Christian funeral, we 100% acknowledge the pain and reality of death, of the importance of grief. Remember, Jesus, le- Jesus wept at Lazarus' death, even though he must have known that Lazarus was going to be raised moments later. It's painful, it's real. But he's saying, even though you will face these cataclysmic events, you can know joy. For my parting is not only necessary, but it is temporary. He says, I'll be back. It's through my going, a new world is being born. It's the same reason why we can have joy today. So the joy that Jesus offers us is not like some sort of shallow, babbling stream with a kind of superficial happiness on top and sorrow underneath in a shallow way. But the joy he offers us is like a deep river in which they may not be a superficial surface of buzz, but a joy that runs deep. See, Christian joy looks honestly and deeply into the depth of our pain. Christianity never seeks, you should never seek to diminish the pain and brokenness we experience. God isn't ignorant of what you're going through today or what you'll face tomorrow, that known or unknown. And we are given this assurance that this struggle is only temporary. The days of the brokenness of our world They're numbered because Jesus has dealt with the root cause, with sin. But whilst those days are numbered, our joy, it will last. Notice Jesus tells them two things are certain in this passage. He said both trouble and joy are certain. But only one of them is permanent. That because when you trust in Jesus, our future is anchored to history, to Jesus' death and resurrection, 
It means no one and no power can take it away, not even death itself. Just this week, I sat with a family who were preparing for a loved one to die. And even amidst their grief, they could share in the joy to know that their trust was in the Lord. If you're going through real hardship right now, I would so love you to hear how encouraging this is. See, God sees the fullness of your struggle. He feels the extensiveness of your pain like no one else can. And he doesn't just sympathise and understand, which of course he does, but he has gone to the cross to ensure that that struggle will not have the final say. And in the meantime, he has given us the most phenomenal resource for joy, himself. We can have a present relationship. We pick up just a little bit through verse 22 again. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. It's permanent. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So let's be totally clear. I hope I can be totally clear. So when Jesus says in verse 23, my Father will give you whatever you ask my name, if that got your attention, you thought this sounds like a pretty good deal. And then he says again, verse 24, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. He is not saying that you can ask for absolutely anything in his name and God is compelled to give it to you. So God is not a genie in the bottle, beholden to every whim, flight or fancy that you might have or that I might have, just because we use the name of Jesus. It's not some sort of magical power word, word but which compels God. Now, clearly that wouldn't stack up. Clearly that wouldn't be good for us. And it also means that we must have a very diminished view of God. It would be a bit like me giving our four-year-old a motorcycle just because we told her that she must always use the word please when she asks for something. And she comes along and says, Dad, can I please have a motorcycle? Oh, you used please. Now I've got to give it to you. What Jesus is promising is much richer and deeper. He's inviting us to share in deep union with God through him. He's inviting us to share in the type of relationship that he has with the Father. Because through his death and resurrection, we've been grafted in. That's why Jesus says in verse 26, I will not ask the Father on your behalf. No, he himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. See, we're grafted in through Jesus when you put your trust in him. The people of God don't need to come via sacrifices or a priest or stay at a distance behind a curtain that shields them from the glory of God. But we are invited into deep fellowship with the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Praying in Jesus' name means at least two things. It means we come to God in both humility and confidence. See, if we just go to God thinking that we deserve things, we're actually just praying in our own name. And God you should give me this because I deserve it. You owe me. In Adam's name, that's effective. What we're praying, we can't possibly do that. 
we can come humbly, not by our own standard or goodness, but in Jesus' name. But praying in Jesus' name also means that we can come confidently. Did you hear that? He loves us. He wants us to speak to him, to know him. He sees us as his own son. That's why he'll only answer our prayers in ways that are good for us and in keeping with his character. Before this part of the table talk, Jesus had been promising the gift of the Holy Spirit, that even though he would go, that he would be tangibly present with the disciples. And the most phenomenal news is that as we wait for Jesus to return, as you put your trust in Jesus, you have that same gift. Jesus' personal and abiding presence through thick and thin. Just imagine, what, what greater gift could you, could you want? As you do up your Christmas list, what greater gift could you want than Jesus' presence with us? That's, that's why Jesus can say, your joy will be complete. You can't add to it. There's nothing more to be done. There's nothing else to buy. It's complete in him. You can have a joy that isn't dependent upon you or what's happening, what may happen tomorrow, but it's dependent upon what Jesus has done and that he's with us right now through all and in all. It really is the most amazing gift to enter into. I want you to imagine that one day this week you decide you're going to get the telephone number for one of the top five ASX-listed companies and you're going to give them a ring. And so you give them a call, and when you get through the barrage of you know, computer-assisted prompts and you finally perhaps get to speak to a real person, you say, hello, it's Adam here, or insert your own name, okay, but you get how the story It's Adam here, I'd like to speak to the CEO, please. If they didn't just laugh you off or just dismiss your request or hang up and say this is not possible, you would probably have to go through a very long list of people with many written formal requests, protracted periods of waiting, on the infinitesimal chance that you might get a 15-minute window in person or on the phone with the CEO after waiting months and months in order that you could try and track down and speak to the boss. Now, of course, not necessarily that CEOs are bad leaders, but they've got finite resources. They're unable to meet all the needs because they're human. But that's not how God is, because he's God. He's not distant, he's imminent, he's drawn close. He's not unable, he's omnipotent, he has unlimited power. He's not indifferent, he's gone to the furthest extent possible to make it happen. And he's not unwilling, he's loved us even unto death. We can have immediate, direct an intimate access into the very presence of God. So what would stop us? No matter what you're facing or feeling, I encourage you today, bring it into the intimacy of relationship with God. Christian joy can sit right alongside sorrow. Speak to him, cry out to him, cry with him. And the more you run to him, the more it will become second nature. See, when our joy is in Jesus, 
it means when sorrow comes, it will push us deeper into him. To delight in him, all that he's done, his beauty, wonder and worth. Finally, we can have a joy because there is a permanent victory. So verse 31. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things, so that in me you have may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The disciples think they have finally got it, but Jesus is warning them, you don't. A time is coming when you're all going to be scattered. In fact, you're even going to abandon me. But know this, I won't be alone because my Father will not leave me. Know that Jesus isn't telling them this in order to make them sort of feel bad in advance, but so they will have peace. So you wonder, how, how would this, along with all that he shared, give them peace? Because it means that even when it looks like things have failed, he will triumph. Even when they experience trouble, God is with them. Even when things look grim, the victory has been won. When Jesus says they will have trouble, he doesn't just mean a few setbacks or a spot of bother. The word used for trouble here is elsewhere a reference to the afflictions of those who are hard-pressed by the calamities of war. Actually, the same word is used in Hebrews, referring to the afflictions of even Jesus himself faced on the cross. The disciples, when they encounter the risen Jesus, they will indeed go from grief to joy. But it's not just going to be smooth sailing after that, even though the joy will endure. Almost all of them will be martyred. So how could they possibly take heart? Because of Jesus' extraordinary claim that he has overcome the world. So Jesus is not saying, cheer up, chaps, it'll all be fine. Jesus is saying that even though you will face trouble, that when they see it, when they feel the full force of it, that it shouldn't be caused to think that he has failed, but it should be caused to take heart in him. It's to Jesus they should look. Because the last word will not lie with the evil one. The last world will not rest in the rebellious the last word will not rest in the rebellious nature of the world. The last word will not even rest in death itself. But the last word will it rest with Jesus. It's through his death and his resurrection that sin and death have been defeated and it will be when he returns that that is plain to see. He says, it's done. I have done it. I have overcome the world. No one else can say these words. The victory wholly belongs to him. You know, for quite a period of time now, uh, happiness studies have been all the rage. There's been lots of research into happiness. But if you want a joy that runs much deeper, that is permanent and lasting and cannot be taken away, that tastes God's future by delighting in Jesus 
today, there's only one in whom you'll find it. And you can come to him this very day. Let's pray. Gracious Father, how we thank you so much that you have welcomed us through your Son. We thank you that you have promised a joy that cannot be snatched away, that cannot be diminished, but is lasting because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Lord, how we pray that you would help us to ask for good things, and we thank you so much that you are the giver of all good gifts. Lord, I especially pray right now for anyone here who is facing real struggle, be it something recent, be it something that has been happening a long time. Lord, how I pray that in the power of your Spirit, that they might know a joy that sits under and comes right alongside that sorrow, that you might be their comfort and their peace. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who has not yet put their trust in your Son, Lord, I pray that they would see with such a great clarity the beauty and wonder of Jesus, of all that he has done, of who he is, and that, Lord, this very day that they might look to him, they might put their trust in him, Now, your goodness, your mercy, your grace and your love and be saved. So, Lord, please, may we know your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.